0: what it means to be a brown man in a white culture has been a theme
1: in my life. And in the career of actor and comedian Asif Manvi, a career that included many years of regional theater jobs, roles that were stereotypical for men of South Asian descent, gigs you had to take to pay the rent.
0: I was fortunate enough in that my career consistently had little
1: wins that propelled his career forward still he was 40 when he got the call for the position for which he's best known correspondent on the daily show but on that day in 2006 asif manvi was not optimistic in fact he was almost dismissive when he walked in and auditioned for john stewart
0: i walked in thinking never gonna get this job might as well just like do it for a lark I'll say, I'll do my best Stephen Colbert impression and be done with it. So I went in, did my best Stephen Colbert impression, read from the teleprompter, and he hired me right there in in that moment. He just turned to me and he said, congratulations, welcome to The Daily Show.
1: I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey, the obstacles overcome, plan Bs, terrible first jobs, and the passion to pursue a dream. Asif Manvi has had a long career on stage and screen and TV. He was born in India and moved at a young age to Bradford, a small industrial city in the north of England. Not an easy place for a young Indian kid in the 70s and early 80s. But there were two early loves that sustained Asif Manvi. From a young age, you once said that the two things you knew you loved were acting and peanut butter. Yeah. So... Is peanut butter still being good to you, I guess, is the big question here.
0: That is so true. Acting and peanut butter are the two things that sustained me for much of my life, especially my childhood. But I don't eat peanut butter as much anymore. Interestingly enough, as I've gotten older, I've switched to almond butter, less inflammatory. <laughs> peanuts <laughs> Well, peanuts were having a little bit of an inflammatory response. So I don't know. Uh, I still love peanut butter and I still go back to it for a treat occasionally, but I can't, I don't, I don't eat it every day anymore. And also just the calorie intake that I was getting, even the almond butter. Now I'm a little bit uh, more careful about, it's just, you realize it's a lot of calories.
1: And the clarification was it was peanut butter, not jelly. No, no jelly. Yeah. No jelly. That's, uh, that's for,
0: that was, you know, I grew up in England, uh, peanut butter and jelly. I came to America and, and everyone was like peanut butter and jelly. Like, you know, like it was like Laurel and Hardy, you know, it was just like, they went together and I was like, I don't know if that's true. Like, cause I, I was a purist about it. I was very much like two slices of bread and some peanut butter, not too much, just the right amount in between two slices of bread. And that was uh, my lunch in school every day. But yeah, I never did the jelly. The jelly seemed like an Americanism that I Mm -hmm. just never could get on board with. It it just was like, oh, it's like, why do you you need to compete with it? Like, why just go with the pure thing? You know, it's like you don't need to like add, make it more dilute. You dilute both of them, you know? So I I never went with that.
1: (laughs) You were 16 when you came to the States. Yes. Around there. So prior to that, when you're growing up in England, what's the, what are you getting pure joy out of? What's, is there a goal like, oh, I'm setting my sights on this, or was it not quite that clear at that point?
0: Well, I think I discovered acting when I was uh, 13 or 14 years old. I discovered acting, and then that was my, talking about my other love in life, that was the other, that was the thing that then uh, took over my childhood. And I was really focused on just that was where I drew a lot of pleasure. I, I mean, I grew up in a dreary coal mining wool factory town in the north of England, you know. And Bradford, if any of you have ever been there, it's not a place, you know, that, like you're going to write home about. It's like it's a lovely town, but it's a sort of an industrial working class kind of
1: town. So is the and, thought that acting is going to be my my ticket out of here?
0: Yeah, like that was the dream, right? That was the dream. The dream. And is was... that
1: because there's like a local acting or local theater, or is it all stuff that you see on TV and in the movies? Well, the
0: stuff that I saw on TV initially, and then I and then I joined a local children's theater group in a little sit town outside of Bradford called Brighouse, which is about ten miles away. And I went there every Wednesday night, and that was where we did, you know, improv games and put on plays and it was all kids my age, like, you know, young, 16, 17. And that was where I think I discovered the passion for it. Uh, and that I really loved doing this. And it all, it's also that period of time is so formative. You know, you're you're discovering like your own hormones and everything. And so there's girls and there's – you know, so it was a lot of it was a lot of stuff going on at that at that age. I fell in love with, with it at that time. And then that carried through for the rest.
1: I've the heard rest about that hormones thing that, that yeah, you know, yeah, 16, 70, talk, I've, I've read about that. About it. Yeah. yeah, it makes, yeah. It,
0: A lot of movies about it.
1: <laughs> so as you're doing this, are your folks like, Oh, this is great. He's found a passion or are yeah. they, Hey, <laughs> we moved to England. You know, there's the generations of immigrants coming from one country to another and we did this for you and we yeah. expect you to be a B or C
0: well I think they were I don't think there was an expectation to be a B or C but I think they were scared that their son was not only not doing that well in school but seemed to only be interested uh, in, in yucking it up you know and and sort of going down to the theater thing on Wednesday nights that was the only place that seemed to excel uh, so I think they were worried and and you know this was the 1970s and it wasn't like there were a whole bunch of brown people on television or in movies or anything or theater or anywhere especially you know outside of india and so i think my parents were like what is he going to do with his life like if this is all he can do and all he wants to do it's going to be he's going to end up being a shopkeeper like my dad was and so they wanted something better for me and i think it was hard for them because, because I wasn't getting the grades and I wasn't really applying myself mm-hmm. like all of the other, you know. Uh, we, we, we sort of lived within a, we had a community of of, of of Indians and Pakistanis that we kind of, my parents, friends and stuff, and their kids were all going to grammar school and, you know, doing well academically and on their way to like, you know, the top schools in the country to get to become doctors and lawyers and engineers. And and I was sort of couldn't even really pass the entrance exam to the local grammar school. So we were terrified.
1: So what role does the actor, the great actor Omar Sharif play in this in terms of you as a kid having this passion, but also trying to see, as you've described, you know, where you fit in in England at that point as a man of South Asian descent?
0: Well, Omar Sharif was someone who I looked at and, 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 and saw like, oh, there's a brown face. There's a person, and, it, and you know, he wasn't Indian, he was Egyptian, but just the fact that in Dr. Zhivago or Lawrence of Arabia, there was this guy who did not look like every other white Hollywood movie star. So for me as a little kid watching that, I was like, oh, well, it can be done. It can be done. One guy did it. And then my parents would obviously just be like, yeah, one guy did it. (laughs) In all of Hollywood, there's one guy, you know, who really made it. So, yeah, you know, and they had a good point. They had a fair point. But um, it just gave me a sense of like, oh, this is something that could happen. But I, I, you know, I think that what Omar Sharif, his existence did for me was sort of Create this idea of a possibility that then I could look at my parents and go, well, look, there's this, you know, there's this guy, right? Like, at least this is. But I think even if I had not seen Omar Sharif, I think I would have still pursued it. I don't think I, that was the reason I went forward. I think it just gave me an extra sense of like, it can happen. It, it, there is a possibility that it can happen.
1: You told me you I had a chance uh, years later in New York. I think you were attending bar at an event.
0: And I, met, and I, met him. I mean, I was, I was Cato Waitering, and I served him something. I forget what it was now. And I wrote about it in my book. I sort of took a little bit of liberty with it, but it was a very, I mean, I, I was too, I don't think I really was able to talk to him, you know, like it, it was, he was like seeing, you know, He was a legend. And it was also he was older than, you know, and and it's it's also like when you when you meet people like that, you sort of go, oh, like they were so influential to my psyche at a time when I needed that. I don't remember what I, I don't think I ever spoke to him. I think I just served him.
1: I believe the term "gobsmacked" might. Come yeah, I was to a little mind.
0: gobsmacked. I think I yeah. was.
1: So at your, yeah. when you first are aware of him, you've told me that there was this notion of. What is manhood? What is masculinity? As you eventually realize, it's, you know, on TV or on movies you're seeing in those days, mostly it's presented as white men. And then there's this other form or uh, example of your father. But then Sharif provides like this third possibility, so to speak. Yeah. Right. What, what age are you? Are you starting trying to figure that out as a kid, as a teenager? Or is that only something you really come upon, say, I when you're a young you're adult? Pod-
0: and then probably as a young adult, you know, I think, I mean, the, the question of masculinity has, has been one and, and, and what it means to be a brown man in a white culture has been a theme in my life because all the images of masculinity that are given to for, for a long time, and that's changing now, mm-hmm. But for a long time, the images of masculinity were all white, heterosexual men. And those are the images that were given to black and brown men of my generation, of my age at that time. You know, that was all we had. So to find the Sydney Poitiers or the Omar Sharifs out there at that time was a huge thing because it was like, oh, there's because the other version of it was for young black kids, it was probably the criminal or the drug addict or what Hollywood sort of portrayed. And then for, for me, it was the Bedouin or the, you know, the shopkeeper or the, the native or the savage or, you know, all of those images that I grew up on, Tarzan movies as well, you know. So for somebody to have dignity and to walk with dignity and to be a romantic lead, to be like attractive and dignified, was a real sort of like, well, oh, okay, because I didn't have that in my father. He was a, I mean, not that he didn't carry himself with a certain level of dignity, but he was a shopkeeper. And he was getting, I saw him get spit on by white kids in his shop every day and called a packy and a, the N-word and, you know, whatever, and told to go back to his country and, you know, uh, uh, and and racial slurs like that. And so that's what I saw my father deal with. And I saw my father get small around white people. And, you know, and that's, and I think that's the legacy of colonialism as well, right? Is that I saw my father shrink in the
1: face of white men. Did that precipitate the move to the United States?
0: Well, he moved to the United, we moved to the United States because he had a friend of his from college who was like, who lived in Tampa, Florida and said, Come to Tampa; it's amazing. You gotta love it. There's the sunshine every day; like, it's beautiful. You're gonna love it here. Get out of in England. It was '80s. England was, in, you know, Thatcher. It was, you know, all of that. So I think my father moved, just seeking a better life and an opportunity for something more. You know,
1: I, 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 do you recall how you felt about it?
0: I was super excited about moving to America. I grew up on a diet of of, of Hollywood and, right. and the movies, and this is because I had ingested all of this fantasy about America. America, you know, around the world for a long time had a great PR person working for it. You know what I mean? Which was Hollywood. To me, I you know, I, as a little kid coming mean, as a teenager coming to America, I thought like my life was just gonna everything was gonna be perfect like what would go wrong like you know why would it was it was the place it was the land of where everybody wanted to be you know that was what it was
1: and so how long does it take before it starts to sink in that oh this is a complicated (laughs) place too and it may not be the streets are paved with gold as my father is thinking
0: Uh, yeah i think around the Trump administration. No, I. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that soon, you know, once you get to high school and college and stuff, and you start to realize, like, oh, I mean, I, I, I actually had a great time in Tampa, Florida. You know, uh, I had good friends, and and I joined the theater department in my high school, and so again, acting saved me. It was always the savior that came along and. When things were difficult i would i would you know that was what what came along and, and helped give me purpose. So I sort of fell in with the theater nerds and the and the and the little bit of the Misfit toys in school, you know, but there was I definitely noticed that America was a place where at that time, there was little interest in other cultures and other ethnicities. And, you know, it it was, it was mostly divided along black and white racial lines. And I remember one of my first images of going to Chamberlain high school in Tampa, Florida was that all the black kids sat on this side of the cafeteria and all the white kids sat on this side of the cafeteria and not because they had to.
1: And so how did you, where did you fit in there?
0: Well, I I fit in with the white kids. You know, I, I found my niche with the white kids because white kids were kind of what I knew coming from England. And as a product of where I came from, it was like, you know, my my parents also carried the sort of racism of like, don't hang out with the black kids. That'll get you nowhere. Hang out with the white kids. You know, that'll hang out with white people, make friends with white people. They're the ones who are going to like get you somewhere. You know, don't make friends with the black people because they're not going anywhere. That was the
1: attitude. Right. That's spoken or unspoken
0: probably unspoken. And it was a socioeconomic thing. You know, when you're an immigrant, you want to align yourself with the dominant group and the one that has the most money and the most power, and that in society. And that was white people. Mm -hmm. And so on some level, it was like, you don't want to hang out with the, you know, the working class sort of Indian people. You don't want to hang out with black people. You want to like make your friends, into the white people because those are the ones that are going, they're going to go places and that's what's going to help you get ahead in life. Now that wasn't something, and, and, and carrying a certain level of contempt for those very same white people, you know, I mean, my, my grandfather used to say to me, you know, every problem in the world, every, every geopolitical problem in the world can be boiled down to the British, because they divided up countries and drew borders between, you know, India and Pakistan, Iraq and Iran, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, the like all these areas that they just went in and chopped up and divvied up, those places, you know, Israel and Gaza and whatever, you know what I mean, like the whole thing, it's like it's all the fault of the British. You know, here I am, a little Indian kid who was told that, So there's a carrying a contempt for that culture, but at the same time recognizing that that was the culture I adored. It was the people I adored because, you know, so it was like, it was almost like I also wanted to be Peter O'Toole or, you know, uh, uh, you know, or, or some, you know, other than Omar Sharif, it was like all of my heroes were white people, you know? So it was like, what was I going to do?
1: Could be confusing.
0: Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. The internal, confusion of like being a second-class citizen you know it's like it's like uh i don't know which comedian said it but like i only want to go to parties where th- that don't want me or something like that you know what i mean yeah. like it was, it was almost like that like i wanted to be in the club that didn't want me so that felt like you know
1: and amidst all that in uh, high school in tampa where does the michael jackson impersonation come in
0: well it's interesting now when i look back on it so michael jackson i just started impersonating him one day in the car with a couple of friends of mine and they were like wow and then i was i was able to do the dance moves and i and i just sort of mimicked him and kind of like thought it was amazing and kind of cool and it was 1984 michael jackson was the biggest thing on the planet mm-hmm. so the fact that i could imitate him or could move like him at that time was a way for me to get up and perform because that's all I wanted to do. And it was a way for me to gain some kind of popularity, some kind of status. And ironically, I look back on it now and I, and I, and I look at it more like with a $10,000 sort of bird's eye view on the whole thing. And I go, oh, right. Here was Michael Jackson who was playing or at least sort of manipulating the idea of black and white And what he was and how you could, whether you could pin him down, whether he was doing it consciously or not. Like there was this message of of racial ambiguity that came from his very being. And so it's interesting that I was attracted to that person Mm -hmm. and, and, and attracted to that idea of imitating somebody like that. And it was the first time that the black kids in my high school spoke to me. And I walked. I remember walking down the hallway in, in Chamberlain High School, and there were a whole bunch of black kids who never ever spoke to me or had nothing to do with this Indian nerdy Indian kid. And suddenly they were like, "Hey, it's Michael Jackson," <laughs> you know. And and I was like, "Wow!" And suddenly I, I felt like it gave me like this weird identity that was not even my identity, but it was like an adopted thing for a minute that I had, which actually sort of made me weirdly cool, Uh, because at that time in 1984, imitating Michael Jackson was still a relatively new thing to do, you know? Not everyone was doing it.
1: This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. Asif Manvi graduated from the University of South Florida and eventually headed up to New York to pursue acting. And as he worked and hustled to get more work, he had more than a few before the cheering started years. I'm always fascinated by people who uh, achieve a level of acclaim a little bit later on in life. Mm. And you were 40 when you get The Daily Show. You had done a lot of work up until then, including Sakina's Restaurant, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm curious, that's a lot of years yeah. From leaving Tampa. And I'm curious, you had this passion, but are there moments during those years of I don't know if I can do it anymore?
0: Yes, it was mitigated by the fact that I couldn't really do anything else. So I, I didn't really know what else I was going to do. But so
1: so there was never a plan B?
0: No, not really. I mean, the plan mm. B was go back to Tampa and you know, and it was, it really was, when I came to New York.
1: Which is what it, year?
0: Which is in 1991.
1: Okay. And you're going to auditions, I would I'm assume? i going
0: auditions and it was do or die. It was really like, but you know, I had, I had a tremendous amount of confidence for some reason. I don't know where it came from that it was all going to work out. Like I, I actually didn't, I think my, you know, I remember my parents visiting me when they first got to, uh, came up to New York the first time to visit me. And I was living in this one, I was living in this like sort of railroad apartment in Queens, in Long Island city. And it was um, a bunch of South American grad students and me. And I had like one little room uh, with a mirror and and a bookcase and a chest of drawers and a mattress on the floor. And that was it. And I had a window that looked out into like a, a an alleyway that was not even a real window, it just looked at a wall. A week before, or a few days before my parents showed up, the ceiling had fallen in. <laughs> and the plaster had fallen from the ceiling onto my bed. And so it was a huge sort of like thing on the ceiling where the plaster had not been replaced yet. And I remember my dad just coming in and looking at this and just being like, <laughs> what the f- is going on? You know, like where is he living? And
1: but, yeah, but that I, that expression can be taken so many ways. So yeah, many exactly, different ways.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah.
1: But they never said yeah. to you they didn't hey, say come hey, back. Hey, come on.
0: No, no. The thing that I will say is that I was fortunate enough in that my career consistently had little wins. Yeah. So it wasn't a steep graph. It was a very slow graph. But I was getting a little bit more and everything, you know what I mean? So I could, I had something to show for myself. I could say, look, I did that regional theater gig and I got $250 a week. And now I'm doing this kind of thing here. I'm I'm understudying off Broadway and I'm getting $400 a week. And you know what I mean? It was sort of like, it was like, okay, the little things that are happening. And it's, and so I think I always felt this sense of like, okay, as long as I, I keep going, this direction, like a little, even though they're baby, baby infant steps, I'm not going backwards. I'm not going in the other direction where and, and things have not stalled for me. So I think what I what I realized was I was like, I'm talented enough to where people are interested in me in the sense that like the door wasn't being completely shut in my face. Wasn't always the best door that opened, like it was, you know. But but a door would open, and so I was like, oh, I think I always internally believed that I had talent, that I could do it if I just got the chance, like I could deliver. And I just was like, I just need to get to the place where they're willing to take a chance on me. And 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 then you know it started to happen. Like I started to get some regional theater gigs, I was doing some Shakespeare, you know, and then I was doing a little off Broadway and. And it started, and it started to build, you know. And 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 every time, it was like, "This is great." I was really excited about it all, you know. I was like, "Oh, this is great! I can't believe I'm doing this," you know.
1: And so, when you have your own show, Sakina's Restaurant in yeah. 1998, yeah, uh, is the sense with your own characters that you've created is the sense that this is it. This is great. This is you know. Uh, this is what I want. This is what I've dreamed of.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, it was like, I remember going to see a casting director and she was like, what's the dream? And I was like, to win an Obie Award for my one-man show. And I, and, 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 and I realized now in retrospect, she must have been like, okay, that's the dream? All right, you know. But at the time, it was. That was the, like, that's what I, you know, it was like I put so much work into that show. I had spent so many years developing those characters to finally get to do it on a legitimate New York stage was amazing you know it was it was it was a dream come true and it was and 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 to tell my own story with my own words the thing that i had written i felt like it was what i was meant to do like i was like oh this is what i was meant
1: to do and so in the aftermath of that uh what is the feeling when are you still Being auditioned for roles, as the expression you've used is patanking. Yeah. Uh, Are you still, even after you have your own show off Broadway, are you still being asked to do roles where you have the tough, because you still have to pay your rent, where you have the tough call of, should I really do this or not? Am I in a place where I can turn this down because essentially it's offensive to me? Yeah.
0: 1998, I do Sakina's Restaurant. And it did turn my career around, I mean, not around, but it, it took my career to another level, in the sense that people now knew who I was a little bit, and it sort of gave me a little bit of a reputation among in the business, in New York, in the theater community, in the casting community, in the but the auditions I was getting and the roles I was getting auditions for were still often the shopkeeper, on Law & order or the you know because that's all that was being written on television. Right, there was nobody writing the kind of roles, you know. There was no Mindy Kaling, there was no Master of None, there was no, you know what I mean? Like, like this is way before all that, right? So the only roles were like, oh, I'm the I'm the porn store owner on Law and Order, and I have three lines with uh, Jerry Orbach, and that's great. But the one thing I did get after Sakina's restaurant was that Ismail Merchant came and saw me in the play, and Here was another, a person in the culture who I went, there you go. Look at that guy. Mm -hmm. Because I had seen his smile in the audience at the Academy Awards when he won, when they won for, you know, Room with a View or the the countless awards they had won in the eighties when Merchant Ivory was, was the biggest thing in town. Right. And I watched this man wearing a Indian clothes and, speaking with an Indian accent, get up and accept an Academy Award. So for that guy to come and see my one-man show and then invite me to star in his movie, again, it was like, yeah, living the dream. Like, this is it. You know, nobody saw the movie, Mm. and it was not a great movie. But so that was happening simultaneously where I was also – getting auditions for parts I didn't really want to play. And then 9-11 happened very soon after that. 9-11 happens in 2001. And suddenly every role that I'm now getting offered is basically a terrorist. And then I had to turn stuff down because then I was like, I was reading horrendous, like horrific versions of the Muslim bad guy in every script, you know, then I was getting script. Uh, my agent was like, "Hey, you got another audition for you." You know, it was like suddenly the audition scene was blowing up, but it was all the same role. It was all the bad guy screaming "Death to America" and burning an American flag. Like that was essentially every role. And so I'm having to like then make a decision about where my what I could live with as opposed to what was going to pay the rent. And sometimes I did do stuff that would pay the rent, you know, but you also, I also had to then like suddenly I had this other thing that I had to then kind of navigate, which was, can I live with doing this role?
1: Can you tell me the story of what you said when you got the phone call from the daily show in 2006?
0: I essentially said, I'm not available. You know, I, I said, I said, I, I don't want, they, they called me and they said, they want you, uh, to come down and audition for The Daily Show. And I was spending that afternoon writing a, one of those Dear John letters to my ex-girlfriend who I had found out had gotten married, and I was very distraught. I was writing one of those letters, and I said, I can't come in today. I'm too sad to do comedy. <laughs> and, and I'm just too distraught. Will they see me tomorrow? And, she's, and my manager said, no, they're only seeing people today until about 3 o'clock. And I said, "All right, I'll be there at 2:45." <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I put on a suit and tie, and I walked down uh, about ten blocks from, uh, where, twenty blocks from where I lived at the time. And I went down and uh, and walked into the studio and auditioned for John Stewart. And really didn't think this was going to happen. I thought, "Well, this is just one of these stupid things where they're going to call me." Initially, I thought it was going to be something where they say, "Oh." come in and do like, be the voice of Saddam Hussein in a sketch that we're doing or something like I had done on Kimmel or Letterman or whatever, you know. I'd done these like little like sketches and I thought, oh, this is going to be another one of those. I'll make a couple hundred bucks and go home and it'll be fine. And I walked in and, uh, and then they called me back and they said, no, no, it's for a correspondent. So I said, fine, I'll go down 245. I'm not, really not in the mood. And I, I walk in and uh, I remember reading the lines and trying to it was all this script and i was trying to memorize it and uh, the girl came out and she said you know john's ready to see you and i said oh can i have a few minutes i i i, uh, I got to try to learn this stuff and so she said oh no no it's on the teleprompter it's fine you don't have to you just have to familiarize yourself with it and i remember this feeling of like teleprompter and i threw the script on the sofa and i was just like These are amateurs. These people are amateurs. And I just had this attitude. And I walked in thinking, never going to get this job. Might as well just like do it for a lark. I'll say, I'll do my best Stephen Colbert impression and be done with it. So I went in, did my best Stephen Colbert impression, read from the teleprompter. And he hired me right there in in that moment. He just turned to me and he said, congratulations. Welcome to The Daily Show.
1: And you're on the and, show that night. And
0: right? I was on the show that night. And then it wasn't a full-time gig at first. First, it was like, he said, you're on the show tonight and we'll call you. If, you. know, And of course, it was a big deal. Like the Daily Show, this was 2006. It was the height of the Bush administration, Iraq, the whole thing. You know, it was like post 9-11 and everybody saw it, you know, in fact, there was an article in the LA Times the next day, which basically said, who is the brown guy on the Daily Show? They'd never had a Brown correspondent before, because it was all just Colbert and Carell and, and Caudry and Helms and all those guys. Then John just liked me. So he just kept calling me back. He just they got to get a call every week or so and they'd be like, you available next Tuesday? Come on in and do that. And it was great. I'd go in, do a bit, go home. You know, and then eventually, after about three months of the, three four months of that, John said, "Look, we'd like to offer you a contract and uh, and and have you uh, be a part of the Daily Show
1: cast." Were you prepared for the reaction from specifically the South Asian community? Uh,
0: no, uh, you know, I, I, I think it was. It was. I soon became aware of the fact that, like, oh this show was sort of in the zeitgeist in a way unlike anything else that i had ever done up until that point and uh there there was a huge south asian i I didn't even realize that that many south asians watched the show you know (laughs) like i was like oh you know i mean i watched it occasionally i didn't watch it all the time but i think after 9 11 and the Iraq war and all that stuff. I think people were really tuning into the daily show at that point to get some uh, sort of something other than, well, I mean, a lot of people were tuning in to get their news from it. You know, we always sort of poo pooed that on the show itself, but it was a reality that a lot of young people at the time were tuning in to get their news from the daily show. And, and, and I think that a lot of people also appreciated John's sort of point of view on it and and on and what was going on internationally in the world at that time. So when I came on there and there I am, this Brown guy, there was a, a sort of like a lightning rod of like, of like, Oh my God, there's, there's one of us on the show. And he can speak to these things from a perspective that other people, the other correspondents can't and Islamophobia and, the, the 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 antagonism towards Muslims at that time in America and and a lot of the the violence towards Muslims have ratcheted it up after nine eleven and and during that whole period of time and so having me on there as a Muslim as an American you know being able to sit on that fence between cultures. I think a lot of people felt like it was really important and necessary, and I think it because there wasn't anybody like that on the on on the news. You know, there were a lot of people coming on talking about Muslims of this and Muslims of that. A lot of white people uh, and Americans talking. You know, and, and 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 you know, you had CNN, you had Fox, you had you know, but looking at it through a satirical lens and being able to sort of like point at the absurdity of it all and the and the insanity of the news media and all that stuff and also for me to be able to talk about it like i said sitting on that fence i think made a huge difference to people and it was and it had nothing to do with me it just had to do with like what i represented in that moment on that kind on that show at that time in history and what people needed to see and they needed to see a brown person on the show sort of talking about what was going on around a lot of you know uh, uh, what, what Americans were talking about. You know, should we be scared of Muslims? Should we, uh, the Iraq war, uh, WM, you know, all that stuff that was going on that I was able to address and even work on pieces at the Daily Show that were uh, able to address that stuff. So it was cathartic for me in a way, but it was also, I think, cathartic for a lot of other people.
1: I would argue that it did have much to do with you in part because that material in the wrong hands is not quite as effective and honestly as a comedy show, not quite as funny.
0: Thank you. And I think that John hired me because I wasn't a quote unquote comedian. Mm -hmm. I wasn't just like I was an act. I was an actor. And I think he wanted somebody who could do the comedy, but also could give it a certain, I don't even know what the word is. Maybe a certain complexity or a certain, heft or something you know what I mean like I don't know like he didn't he I don't think he wanted it just to be a like a a, a funny guy and so that and and, and 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 you know and and the sort of persona that I developed on The Daily Show we all sort of had our own sort of personas but mine you know had had traces of anger in it so I think that was
1: important. Asif Manvi he's currently starring in the CBS series Evil He has a recurring role in the UK series, This Way Up. And he's the host of the new CW comedy panel show called Would I Lie to You? And he's the author of a terrific memoir entitled No Lands Man that has a book trailer that is arguably the funniest book trailer ever. Before the cheering started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written and produced by me, guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.